Hello, good evening, and welcome to another episode of Decon 101. Today, I am your host, Emily Danko. I'm, I'm Monica Elvin. And I'm Michelle Brown. And of course, we are joined by the phenomenal Candace Hopkins as our producer extraordinaire and phenomenal researcher. Absolutely. And we do apologize if uh, while one person is talking and teaching and taking their part, um, if the other people do sound a little weird or muddled, we were experiencing some technical difficulties today. But I do hope that all of you get as much out of it as we do. And we'll try and make the recording as high quality as possible uh, for the person who is speaking and teaching at this time. Um, with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and jump into our kind of next our next topic, which is disability. I'm really excited to talk about this topic because I learned a lot as a result of my historical research. Uh, but I do want to kind of give you all as our listeners a heads up. This is a very difficult topic and there's definitely a lot of uh negative history of people with disabilities being persecuted, prosecuted, excluded from history. And so we do acknowledge that this may be a really difficult topic for people to listen to this week. So just to make sure that you all um, have kind of that like mental preparation, because I know sometimes I need to, I need to have that kind of a warning before I listen to difficult topics. Uh, but to center ourselves today, what we're going to talk about first is really our own kind of realization of people who are different from us in terms of ability. Um, really, as a elementary school student, I went to a school uh, that didn't have a lot of students with disabilities because a lot of times in elementary schools, especially coming from a teaching perspective, there may not be enough resources at every single school f to serve students with disabilities. And so a lot of times at younger grades, you have one school where those resources are concentrated, you know. And so for me, I don't think that I really experienced, like at least at school, learning alongside people with disabilities into like high school. And it was really only through my church that I had a lot of exposure to, to people who were different from me. And so it was when I was, I think middle school, um, a friend of mine has a younger brother with down syndrome. And that was really my realization that, oh my gosh, you know, people have differences, but it doesn't mean that they're, you know, scary or, or, you know, other, it just means that they're a little different and you know, they need some different things in order to be successful. And that was really, I think, important in my realization for what it's like to work alongside and learn alongside people with disabilities. So that that's my experience. Uh, what about what about you, Monica? I'll go ahead and uh, you can buzz in. Thanks, Emily. Uh, so, yes, I I. I honestly, I was trying to think about the first time that I ever thought about disability um, as an able-bodied person by standard medical definitions. Um, and the first thing that came to mind was a student in one of my classes in middle school. His name was Sam, um, and 
he had autism and he was uh he but he would take several classes uh in the regular classes in addition to his classes that he would take in a separate classroom um and i remember that he got a lot of backlash um from from my fellow students uh, a lot of people who thought he shouldn't be in our class and um and he used to have some pretty uh intense episodes i guess you would say or uh and and he was pretty brutally made fun of um and i think why this sticks with me so much is because after a particularly tough uh, day in class where he had a pretty explosive episode and had to leave um, because the class was being so loud I think we had a substitute that day and you know what happens when there's a substitute everybody just kind of goes free for all uh, and so then his aide actually came back in after bringing Sam to a different uh, classroom to talk to us and explain why we were such terrible people no but um kind of he he explained to us that for Sam it's it's basically like he hears smells sees everything all at the same time it's all happening at once and he can't shut any one sense out and so when it's this noisy classroom filled with people and and I mean people moving around and shouting and all these sense you know you're all going through puberty there's all kind of stuff going on but it's just this overwhelming experience um and it was pretty uh impactful for me and I know for a lot of um my peers in that class that day and I think that was the first time that I ever had to think outside of myself as to how you know, somebody else perceives the world. Um, but that's my pretty traumatic experience. So I'll go ahead and buzz Michelle in now so that she can share her side of things as well. Thank you, Monica and Emily, for sharing your experiences. Um, I think, man, I just really appreciate this question of when did you first experience or notice how disability shows up in in space or in um, how you witness uh, folks with disabilities treated. And I would have to say some of my earliest memories of folks that um, were differently abled um, was in media, quite honestly, um, and thinking of some of the the movies that come to mind, you know, when we think of movies with portrayals of folks with disabilities um, in them. So, you know, thinking about Rain Man, thinking of uh, Forrest Gump. And I remember at a very young age being so overwhelmed with emotions around how human beings had the capacity to mistreat another human being um Mm -hmm. and just being so terribly upset and I think you know Emily you shared that this content is um enraging and emotional when we talk about the social construction of disability because I think it speaks to the human capacity to other and cause extreme trauma to our fellow humans. Um, And so again, like some of my earliest memories are just like watching films that 
have characters that are different, but how society responds to them in a really disgusting kind of way. And yet at the same time being so uh, entranced, um, enchanted, I don't know what the word is, by uh, not the resiliency, but just like the beauty of human diversity. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, most of my early experiences in elementary school, I did go to a school that um, had several students with um, varying levels of disability, you know, neurodivergent, um, physical disabilities. And I remember having a friend, his name was Bruce, who was, who was autistic. And I, he was the most magical person to me. Um, he had the amazing gift of being able to know your birthday. You tell him your birthday and he could tell you every single movie that was produced, released um, in that year. And I just like this, he was magical and just so much love and um, beauty I you know, saw for folks um, that were oftentimes categorized as other and was so confused by that mistreatment um, because I think at an early age, I was just really thought the way they saw the world. Some of the folks that I interacted with, um, my fellow children um, interacted with the world was so different and so beautiful and so fun. And I wanted to like know more. So I think my earliest experiences are, are, mixed emotions of devastation, frustration, but also just like falling in love with just the diversity of different people and the way they see the world. So. At Spokane Treatment and Recovery Services, we are dedicated to our community. That is why we have a sobering unit that runs 24-7 and is the first step into our detox unit. We are fully staffed around the clock in order to make sure that we can answer any questions over the phone while we serve our clientele. For more information or to call anytime, day or night, you can dial 509-570-7255. And welcome back. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's gonna be it's gonna be incredibly frustrating and maddening, and it'll bring up a lot of emotions when I talk about the history of disability. So I really wanted to start with something happy. Um, in 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. So yay, 30 years of the American with Disabilities Act. That's been a very important piece of legislature, legislature uh, helping people with disabilities be a part of society in a lot of different capacities. So um, I, I want to start with that good note is that this will end in a much happier place than it starts out. But just know that there's a very long history of exclusion and segregation and persecution of people with disabilities. Um, so as always, because I think I've started every single history piece with the Greeks and the Romans, we're going to start there again. 
Um, there was actually no Latin word for disability, and they used the word monstrum, which if you think about like Greek and Latin roots, that's the root of the word monster. It's the same word that they used for mythical monsters, which is exactly. And that word monster was even used to describe people with disabilities until like the 1800s. Like you look at the gravestones of babies who died really young because of disabilities. And it literally says baby monster on gravestones. Oh my gosh. So you can see how this attitude has lasted throughout these centuries. I mean, you, you think that you're free of the history, but no, we need to look at it to understand where we are now and why we're at where we're at now. Most of the time, uh, the Romans, they they had a more warlike society and so there was a lot of need for people who were able-bodied and so if you had a physical disability that meant that you couldn't be a part of what they thought was productive society a lot of times you were killed if you've ever heard the term bedlam which means chaos it comes from the first mental hospital so being mentally ill, you don't want chaos, you want structure, you want order, you want to be cared for, and then you get sent to this hospital in 1403 that's supposed to help you and cure you. No, they the hospital inventory included chains and manacles, and they thought that corporal punishment would help cure you of your mental illness. And that, like, Bedlam Hospital is notorious in pop culture today like Sweeney Todd the musical has references to bedlam and people were put there as a punishment because they didn't want to conform to society it it's it was awful and people used mental illness as an excuse to persecute a lot of people who didn't conform to you know the the perception or the norm as the Industrial Revolution really started to take hold, it became a lot more common to see disabilities. We also started to develop a lot more technology for warfare as well. So you saw a lot of uh, disabilities caused by war or you'd have disabilities caused by uh, poor working conditions. I always like to say that the reason we follow OSHA laws and OSHA regulations so closely is because they're literally written in blood. You know, you think about where you store chemicals, the reason why you store chemicals in a certain way, according to OSHA, is because someone has been either severely injured or because someone has died due to poor working conditions. Uh, People at this time were also publicly mocked. Like, you had veterans of wars defending their countries who were publicly mocked for their disabilities. And there were also very few jobs. And so if you had a disability where you couldn't work, you oftentimes you died or you were put in a poor house. So again, not a very good system put in place for people with disabilities and accommodating for them. Um, in the 1900s, people with disabilities started to take a started to be able to take a lot more agency in advocacy. And this is I think a lot more what I want to focus on. Um, We're going to fast forward through the 1930s. Um, Yes, we had FDR as this icon. Um, FDR, if you don't know, had 
partial paralysis due to polio that he had as a child. And so a lot of people, especially in the United States, looked at him as a looked at him as an inspiration um, because he was able to be so successful despite his disability. But then at the same time, you also had uh, the Holocaust where Hitler and um, the Third Reich not only were persecuting people who were Jewish at that time, but they also did horrible, horrible things to people with disabilities. Um, uh, but I don't want to touch on that too much. Um, what I really want to end on is in 1977, this is the coolest thing, I think. So this, if you've ever heard of this, this is called the 504 sit-in. And during this time in San Francisco, people with disabilities had advocated for a really long time and they had gained a lot of support for reforms that would help them be more successful in society. Those are things like, um, curb cuts, making sure that they can use the sidewalks and get off the sidewalk safely, um, having ramps in federal buildings and things like that. And I think it was around 500 people, over 500 people with disabilities went down to the uh, San Francisco uh, federal building and they went to several different buildings and they occupied these buildings for days on end, refusing to be pushed aside, refusing to not be heard, refusing to accept, oh, we need to do more research on these regulations. They said, we need these now and you're going to give it to us because you pushed us aside for too long. And so we have people like uh, Kitty Cohn, who has muscular dystrophy and people like Judith uh, Human, I apologize if I don't get her name right, who served for seven years under Barack Obama as a special advisor for the International Disability Rights uh, Panel. I mean, we have all, a lot of regulations and laws that came about as a result of those protests. And I think it's really important to emphasize how people with disabilities are able to write their own narratives now and able to really... Um, they're they're able to be more they're they're able to advocate for themselves and be politically active and i think that that's what we need to emphasize is that the limitations are not on, based on the disability the limitations are imposed by society all right well thank you emily um that definitely shed some light i i think i mean i've never really thought of it in historical terms other than Nazis and, uh, you know, that kind of extremist viewpoint. Um, but I think one thing that, that was most shocking in my research um, is that, you know, we think of disability uh, as a minority group, right? It's dis- uh, disabled peoples. It's a, it's a smaller subgroup. Um, at least that's kind of the way that I've always thought about it. And yet, uh, when I was researching, I found that according to the CDC's very disappointingly named Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, uh, one in four U.S. adults have a disability that impacts major life activities. So that's 61 million Americans. Um, and then a, a New York Times article shed a, or they, they put a really good, um, I think had a good take on it. They said that at some point in, in a person's life, um, they will either have a disability or know someone who has one. 
So this is not a, this isn't a minority, right? This, this is something that will affect every person in their lifetime. And yet it's something that's kind of shoved to the, to the back of, um, of social consciousness. Uh, Michelle, I really like that your first, um, I guess, awareness of disability was in media. Um, because that's actually, those stats are even worse. Uh, if you think about representation of uh, disabled peoples in media um, through TV or social media, um, you know, whatever's kind of in front of you, there's not a lot of representation. Um, and that's important because if anybody who's in advertising or marketing knows that things that are putting your face a lot more, things that are more familiar to you, you see with higher value. Now, this is not a commercial for Apple, but there is a significance to sheer volume. So the fact of um, this lack of presence of disabled people in media and pop culture really does um, add to that diminished value uh, in normalized society. So I actually found some statistics from New York Times on um, TV shows in the US uh, with actors who played disabilities um, and across the board in 2016 actors with disabilities represented 5% um, of appearances on TV and in 2018 I guess you could see this as a positive that rose to 12% but still most of the portrayals were negative um, so not exactly um, promoting this large group of society that you know it, it's not necessary even in the in the word it's inherently negative right a disability you know it's something that you're lacking something that you don't have um and that just aids to this uh this segregation that we then have um and i actually found another article that canvassed 31 tv programs that have disabilities um portrayed through their characters and uh, across this, it amounted to a mere four people. <laughs> um, and this represented 2% of the total people in the shows. So again, just a complete lack of awareness. Um, and, and then again, moreover, the people who uh, presented with disabilities, a whopping 95% were played by able-bodied actors. So... I mean, those opportunities really aren't there and light is not being shed. Um, and, and this is, isn't just in the media world. It's not just, you know, in TV shows and, and what's on our uh, social media feeds. It's actually in um, sociology as a whole. It's been an underrepresented area of study. Um, it was mainly focused on as a measurement of impairment, as a chronic illness, you know, rather than this experience of people as they perceive themselves. So the research is largely being done by able-bodied people um, who are looking at it from a clinical or medical standpoint um, rather than a social construct or how it fits into normalized society. Um, and, and really it wasn't, it wasn't sociologists, it wasn't scientists, it wasn't media that brought um, light to, to this large group of people that as we can see, I mean, the numbers say it affects every single one of us. It was actually um, the International Disabled People's Movement that brought awareness and attention um, to the experiences of 
this very, very large dominating group of people. Um, and, it, and it was from this movement that disability was no longer considered simply a medical problem affecting a minority population, but increasingly perceived as one of the major sociological and political phenomena of our time uh, with implications on society as a whole. You know, when we see what's happening nowadays, Emily, you kind of touched on this with COVID. Uh, we've all had to drastically alter the way that we do our lives uh, for, you know, lack of a more eloquent way of saying it. But, you know, instead of going to work, we do Zoom meetings and same goes for school. And even um, with our social engagements, you know, this this huge piece to our normal everyday lives was taken. But with that, it became an opportunity, really, because I mean, now we have people um, who would not otherwise have access to these, you know, to certain things like school and work um, if they're, you know, have different disabilities. And now they can come in through virtual routes that are being normalized um, by necessity. And so this has actually benefit a large group of people. You know, we can see that uh, people are able to, to work full time from home and be just as, if not more productive than they are when they actually come into a physical workspace. Um, and so this does open up a lot of opportunities uh, for the future. And so we can see how altering our, our perceptions of the, you could call it the burden of changing our societal, societal norms for what we would think of as a minority group, but really isn't and actually benefits society as a whole. Um, And I was actually thinking a lot about this. Emily, again, you touched on this with uh, children in school who, you know, with individualized learning plans and uh, made me think of how I used to be a paraprofessional when I lived in Colorado and I worked with kids with behavioral and emotional disorders. Um, and, And so it was you know, we followed individualized learning programs, but we were able to be one-on-one with these students uh, day in and day out and really give them the, the attention that they needed. Um, and those kids actually found a, a really high success rate versus now living in Spokane, I actually had a colleague who was asking me about the para program because she has a child who has um, some behavioral disorders and and is really needing some extra help in school. And I talked to her about the PARIC program and told her to, you know, inquire to her school. And she, um, and I actually did some research and I spoke with the principal at her school and it turns out that they do not have anything like that in Spokane whatsoever. So, uh, so that wasn't an option, you know? And so, I mean, thinking about how making these kind of drastic social changes, how they can benefit society as a whole, you know, if we were able to normalize this para program, um, and really even substituting, this has been a hot topic in, you know, the past few months, especially this year, but of, uh, replacing, uh, professionals like like safety officers or um, even you know some schools have police in them with counselors and people who are you know equipped to work with mental health and you know these trained professionals who can give students the attention that they need to address these specific um, you know struggles that they're having conforming to this rigid idea of what society you know or how these rules dictate society um, and how that can be beneficial for everyone, but not just, you know, people who we would identify as having 
disabilities. Um, so these are all, you know, things to think about. And I, I think the the biggest takeaway is something that Candace really touched on in her story, but is this label of being disabled when it, that's such a wide spectrum of things. And, and as we, you know, can see that it really does affect each and every one of us, whether directly or indirectly, um, and just changing the perception on on the burden versus opportunity that's to be had there. Thank you so much, Monica. The, the piece you really hit on around how increasing accessibility for um, folks with um, various needs actually has the opportunity to benefit society as a whole that, um, you, know, you know, when we look at universal design and we look at policy changes around curb cutouts that Monica mentioned um, and how that increases accessibility to uh, folks that uh, utilize a wheelchair, but also everyone, you know, quite, you know, essentially uses curb cuts, um, you know, women that are using um, strollers or anyone that's using a stroller and skateboarders and bikes and uh, curb cutouts have um, benefited society as a whole. Additionally, when we think about um, teaching or training and we take into mind different modes of communication, this not only affects people um, who might have disabilities, but it also um, supports the overall learning of uh, everyone in the room. And so I think the opportunity here is to re-examine um, how society constructs the idea of disability and an opportunity to examine ableism and how pervasive ableism is in our society. Um, and really the process of, and Emily, you really touched on this, the process of deciding both implicitly and explicitly whose bodies and whose needs are valued or valuable. And also quite honestly, um, as you mentioned, Emily, in this, the sad history of also whose bodies are disposable or deemed less worthy um, and how pervasive that idea is. Um, and I think also the opportunity there um, in looking at ableism is the opportunity to also look at the intersections of racism and uh, classism and how these intersecting forms of oppression work um, to oppress huge groups in our society that we deemed minority groups, but as Monica named, are more just minoritized groups. Um, that whose needs are diminished, whose needs are often decentered or not centered and seen as inconvenient, as opposed to an opportunity to really um, be more liberating as a society. And so I, I get really excited thinking about the opportunity to unlearn some of these toxic uh, dynamics and to embrace um, disability justice. And so Emily and Monica both talked about um, the disability rights movement, but there's also um, a new resurgence of the movement that held some very specific tenants um, around disability justice. And these 10 principles are around intersectionality, um, they're very specific about leadership of those most impacted. 
They also really promote an anti-capitalistic politic, a commitment to cross-movement organizing, recognizing wholeness, sustainability, commitment to cross-disability solidarity, interdependence, and collective access and collective liberation. And so some of my favorite folks to follow on social media, and we'll uh, make sure we include these in the show notes, but um, these are some folks that I follow on Instagram. Um, the Body is Not an Apology, Disability as Visibility with Alice Wong, um, Sins Invalid, and a handful of others that are just phenomenal if you want to know more about disability, um, disability justice, understanding how ableism operates, and um, just to be a better ally. And so with that, I am going to take us to a commercial break. And when we're done, Emily will bring us back together. Have you ever been curious about what makes a good leader or considered running or starting your own nonprofit organization? Whitworth's University's Graduate Studies in Education Administrative and Nonprofit Leadership Program was designed for leaders ready to make a lasting impact in their communities. If you've ever thought about leadership or have aspirations of better serving your community, do us a favor and check us out online at whitworth.edu GSE. Welcome back from that commercial. Just to kind of end things, we're going to take a brief look at where we are today with some anthropological look at some different cultures surrounding disability. One of the most important cultures that I want to touch on is the culture is deaf culture, which is really, really interesting. I need to learn more about it because um, I'm not a part of that community and I and I'm and I just want everyone to know I'm speaking as an outsider here and no, acknowledge that I may get something wrong and I apologize in advance. Um, so deaf culture is very, very strong. It's been very strong in the United States for quite a while, and it's a like subculture of American culture. So the values are different than American culture. There's an emphasis on saying exactly what you mean. So I know in my speech, I use like sarcasm. I may like tell my friend, oh my gosh, you're so stupid. But again, it's just playing. It's just sarcasm. A lot of times in deaf culture, you would never do that. It's considered very taboo. Um, in addition, there's there, it's a very close-knit community. Um, and there is a lot of uh, empowerment of other people and things like that. But, you know, just like any culture, not all, it's, it's not a monolith culture. Not everyone believes the same thing. Not everyone behaves the same way. Um, and so there are like two sides to like cochlear implants that can, uh, allow people who are born deaf to hear. And some people who are deaf see this as a really awesome thing because it's allowing people to access sound. But at the same time, there are other people who think that having these cochlear implants will decrease the prevalence of deaf culture and will essentially kill it. 
And it's, there, there's a lot of going back and forth um, in a lot of different disability communities with these same issues as well. Do we want to provide a cure for something that isn't necessarily limiting to people? Um, uh, some autism groups are advocating for more research into what causes autism because they want to decrease the prevalence in children who are born with it. But at the same time, you know, having autism is not a limitation on people in society. It's the society that's putting the limitations on those people. And, you know, Michelle, you would have never have made that beautiful connection with your friend if some of these groups had succeeded in their goals of reducing autism prevalence in, in children, right? And so I, I think that we're going to see a lot of change in a lot of these groups uh, moving forward, not so much emphasis on how do we cure the disability, but how can we pro- change society so society is more welcoming to uh, these diverse peoples. And one thing that I want to touch on, I and I mentioned this earlier, is that we are really, every single one of us, one accident away or one event away from needing the accommodations of someone who has a disability right now. Um, you think about, you know, these war injuries in the 17 and 1800s or um, OSHA violations that have caused people to have injuries and things like that. Those are outside of their control. Those are accidents that happen. People are not born that way. It's something that has happened to them. I could have an accident tomorrow that causes me to lose my hearing and I would need the same access points that Candace needs now. Um, and, you know, with COVID, people, there are people with disabilities who have wanted and needed to work from home. And we're seeing now that was possible all along when people who've needed it have been said, no, you can't work from home for a very, very long time. And so making sure that we have these access points only makes society better. It only makes it easier for people. The same person who is working from home because they have endometriosis or the same person who's working at home because um, they have specific uh, medical needs is the same person who may be working from home because their child is sick that day and can't go to school. You know, so what benefits one person in society benefits really everyone in society. We just need to I think become more aware of where those intersections of access happen. So and Michelle, you touched on this too, you know, with the with the curb cutting and everything. And I'm I'm hoping that this will change for the better moving forward. Um and now that we have uh really d- really dive deep into um the identity and the beliefs surrounding Uh, ability and disability. Uh, We are super excited to announce our next episode will be all about race, which is also an intersection. And I'll talk more uh, next week about how race relates to ability, because there's some really, uh, and coming from the education world for a long time, there was an overdiagnosis of children of color with learning disabilities. And so I'll I'll talk a little more about that next week, but um, just know that There's definitely a lot of intersection with these identities. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Decon 101. Please feel free to 
subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends. We know that we love to reach diverse peoples and differing identities and let us know if you have any feedback. Have a good evening.